0: You're listening to audio from Pillar Church of Jacksonville, where our goal is to know Jesus and to make Him known. If you have questions or want to know more about us, you can text Pillar to nine four zero zero zero, or visit our website at pillarjacks.com. Some of you may know me, some of you may not, but also I'll introduce myself. My name is Jonathan Gentry. I'm one of the members here at Pillar. I also have the privilege of serving as a chaplain over at Camp Lejeune. i got a few of our people here today, which is always fun. Um, so... Uh, I'm a, I love a good story, right? I, I'm a sucker for stories. If you've ever been to my house, those in my small group can know that I have a ton of books and things like that. And if you've ever been to my office, you'll see that. So I love a good story, especially about great leaders who do things and serve in distinct ways. Whether it's the CEO of a company, if you've ever watched Undercover Boss, those are always fun to see kind of what they do for their people afterwards. Or some other leader serving in a, in a tangible way, right? They get down in the dirt, in the mud, and, and do things probably you wouldn't expect them to or to, to attempt. Uh, one of my favorite stories here, some of you may already know this story, especially being in the Marine Corps, but is actually about the former Marine Corps General Jim Mattis. Uh, the story comes from the 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Krulak. I believe I'm pronouncing that correct. But every Christmas, General, the Commandant would actually bake hundreds and hundreds of cookies, and he would go around the Washington, D.C. area and pass those out to anyone who was on duty for the day on Christmas Day. So this particular Christmas, he got up early, of course, and went to all the different places that he could and ends up going to Quantico. And he, he delivers the cookies to the Marines there on on duty and goes to the command center and uh, is just walking around. And he asks the Lance Corporal there, he said, who was the officer of the day? Well, the Lance Corporal replies, it's General Mattis or Brigadier General at this time. And General Krulak says, well, no, no, I know who he is. Who's the officer today on Christmas Day? And he's, again, same reply. It's General Mattis. Well, he's confused at this and sees the, the cot in the back room. He says, Well, who slept in the cot last night? And again, the same reply from the lance corporal it was General Mattis. Well, about that time, General Mattis actually walks in in his duty uniform, and the, uh, the commandant said, hey, hey, Jim, what are you doing here today? It's Christmas. And why are you on duty? Well, the, the story goes that General Mattis told him that a young officer was scheduled to have duty that day who had a family. And he thought it was better that he took the time and served and stood duty so that young officer could be home with his family. And that's a pretty powerful story, right, about one of our former retired four-star generals who would go and do something like that, to go serve on Christmas Day, right? He didn't have to do that. But he chose to go and serve in a tangible way so that particular officer could have a day with his family at home on Christmas Right, and those stories are always inspiring, Right, where you hear some sort of leader doing that. And today we're going to look at a story of someone greater than General Mattis. Today we are going to see the story of the servant king. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, you see the, the passage there on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, there is a, a Bible should be somewhere around you, a black Bible at the bottom. It's the, our uh, gift to you if you don't have one. And for those who want to use that Bible, I'll give you a, a cheat. It's page 846, so it gives you some time to get there. And as we've been walking through this particular gospel over the last several months, we took a few weeks of break and we returned to it a few weeks ago, we've covered a lot of of this particular gospel, right? Now we're in chapter 13, but it's always good to remind ourselves, what is this purpose? What is the purpose of the gospel of John? Well, it's it's great because some authors, right, they don't ever tell you what the purpose of the book is. They just write it and hope you figure it out. But John is distinct here in his book. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Plain and simple. John gives us the reason he wrote his gospel. And so what is our, our main purpose here in this, this particular passage this morning? Well, he, we see here that John's going to show us that Jesus' act of humble service would ultimately point to his act of sacrificial love. Let me say that again. It's a lot there. John showed that Jesus' act of humble service would ultimately point to his act of sacrificial love. Of course, the question we always have to ask ourselves is, so what? How does that apply to us, right? Well, I think for us today, we can see that the same happens to us, that Christians should serve with Jesus' humility so that they may point others to his sacrificial love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into this passage. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and the fact that your mercy is more. God, we know that we do not deserve your mercy and your grace. Lord, we deserve an eternity separated from you and and the full wrath of God on our lives. But God, we we will see today that the beginning of this story, how you begin the process of sending, at least in this moment, in this time frame of Jesus to the cross. And so I pray that as we we hear this story, we know that it was a real event, but it would would radically change our lives because of what Jesus did for us. So God, we thank you. We praise you in advance for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're familiar with this particular gospel, right, we, we see a lot of different things that happen in this particular gospel that are not in uh, the other ones. And this particular section, chapter 13, starts the farewell discourse. So it's this this kind of going towards the cross that we see. And that actually runs all the way up to chapter 17. So if you actually would take the time and read this, you'll see that from chapter 13 till chapter 17, Jesus is continuing to talk, right? It's, there's not a lot of uh, dialogue or, or anything that's not in there. So we see this is the beginning of something that's going on. This is the beginning of the passion season. And so today, in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus serves in two ways. The first way we see Jesus serve is that Jesus served with humility. That Jesus served with humility. So we're going to cover the the 30 verses here today and, and the bulk of this will be in this first particular way in uh, John chapter 13 follow along with me starting in verse 1. It says now before the feast of the passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. During supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are those, or blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his hill against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. We'll stop there for now. We see here, right, this is the season that... That John is talking about this the season of Passover as it tells us there in verse 1 right and just as a refresh our memories uh, we know that the Passover season it started in the Old Testament right with the people uh, in the book of Exodus we see them leaving right there at the end we, we read a passage about the celebration of leaving the land of Egypt well in this moment we know that God sent all these different plagues right to the land of Egypt because Pharaoh refused to let the people go and the, the final plague that Jesus, or God sent upon the people was the Passover, right? The angel of death and the firstborn of each household would pass. And God gave them an instruction and said, Hey, go, the, go kill a lamb, pour, pour the blood, and put it on the, the door and the lentil, right? The doorpost on the lentil. So, right, the sides and the top of your door. And anyone who did not do that would face the consequences. But if you were obedient to what God was telling them, the angel of death would pass over your home, right? So it's in and of itself what we hear from that text. So this is exactly the feast that the Jewish people are about to celebrate in this passage. And it, and it continues, of course, to this day. It, it coincides with uh, Easter. And look here, it says, He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And if you're familiar with this gospel, you, you kind of hear this phrase, his hour, his hour, his hour. And most of the time, right, Jesus saying, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it hasn't come. Particularly one passage you can, we, we first really see this is at the wedding at Cana, right, where Jesus turns the water into wine. Mo, if you're familiar with that story, Mary comes to him, right, and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And listen to what Jesus' response was. He said, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And, and that bears significance to what we see here in this passage. Even in John chapter 12, he actually changes his, his statement. He says, in John 12:23, Jesus answered them, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." So we see that something's happening, right? This, there's a shift in the story that John is writing. This hour has come to depart out of this world, right? We know that he's going to go back to the Father. But notice what it says. He says, hey, he, he has loved his own who are in the world even to the end. All right? Jesus called 12 disciples and he loved them all the way to the end and, of course, to this day. Looking at verse 2, we, we see this interesting phrase, right, where it says, The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we don't know the full story, right, of how Judas was called to follow after Jesus, but we know that at some point in this journey over the three years or so that he was with Jesus, that something's happening, right? Where he is on this journey to begin to plan Jesus' betrayal. And back in chapter six, we we hear this. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil, is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the, Simon, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus already knows the person who is going to betray him, and even knew that right when he chose him, which we'll get to a little bit later. Well, So this is important that we already see something's going on in this story, right? There's something going to happen by the end of our text that is going to change some things. But look at what verse 3 says says that Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into his hand. And this is important, right? Because if he doesn't know, then there's something going on here, right? Jesus is completely in control of everything that's going on and everything that's going to happen, including the betrayal of Judas or by Judas's hand, right? John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is not aloof to what's going on. He's not... Oh, wait, where did this come from, right? He knows what is going on in this particular instance. And he also knows that he had come from God and was going to go back to God, right? This, this idea of the incarnation, right? We celebrate that at Christmas where Jesus became flesh. He came as a human and ultimately would come for us. And then, of course, later on in the, the Gospel of John, we're going to see him ascend back to the Father. He's going to go back to God. And look what he does here in verse 4. He rises from supper. And that's important, right? Because he's about to do something. It says he lays aside his garments, outer garments, takes a towel, and ties it around his waist. Well, we see that he goes to wash the disciples' feet. Well, for us, that may not mean a lot, right? Okay, well, yeah, we take a bath every night. We take a shower in the morning, whatever. We wash our feet. But this is important because we see here, of course, back in that day, right, sandals were probably the more appropriate footwear or barefoot, dirt roads. So, of course, their feet were constantly dirty whenever they would travel. And all the other things that could be in the city, we understand that anytime they would go somewhere, they would have to wash their feet when they got home, when they went over to a guest house. And even this, once again, make sure we understand that the New Testament always goes back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not irrelevant to us today. And we see this here. Moses in Genesis chapter eighteen four says, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Even in Joseph's house we see that the men brought them in into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet. So it has this Old Testament connection and it comes into bear here. I mean, it's just like we would do, right? If you go to the beach, you you spend all day in the afternoon when it actually is not, you know, 35 degrees outside right now, right? You go to the beach and you go in the water and get your, you know, get the sand all over your feet and toes and stuff. And by the end of your time at the beach, you typically will go wash them off one of those little foot showers or a normal shower and get them clean, right? Same thing we would do, right? So this task, though, was given to the lowest slave or servant in the household, and actually, not even the Jewish slave. If there was a Gentile, it was designated for them. I mean, even the lowest Jewish slave wasn't called to do this. This was at the bottom of the totem pole when it came to an act of service. And of course, we see here that if you went over to a guest house, that was the custom, right? That some, hopefully they would provide some water, either for you to do it or a servant to do it, if they could afford that. But in this passage, we see that there was no one to wash their feet. They had traveled they had traveled to this place, but we see the person that does this. It's not one of the disciples, it's Jesus he He is the one who takes up the towel. he is the one who takes up the water basin and goes around and cleans his disciples' feet. so even John points this out here right He had just said, hey he is going he had come from God, he's going back to God He's is, he is exalting Christ in this moment and we, we'll see that later on in what he says in the passage. But now he is showing his humility in verses 4 and 5, right? Like I said, this is not like he just happened to like bring coffee for everybody. No, he is doing the lowest job that anyone could ever do in a servant's household. And Peter rightfully asked this question, right, in verse 6. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? For Peter, it was unheard of of someone like Jesus, right, someone that they knew was the Messiah, to stoop so low to do something For his disciples. But Jesus is, of course, setting an example of service, like he even says in the passage, and they're not going to understand it right at this moment, right? And Jesus does that a lot in his his teachings. He says, hey, you may not understand this right now, but one day you will. And of course, we know that after the resurrection, a lot of this is like those light bulb moments, right? He's like, now I understand why Jesus did that. And so this is what we see in this passage, right? In in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, he's adamant that Jesus is not going to do this, right? He's like, hey, no way, Jesus. Uh, You know, go make Judas do it, right? He he doesn't know. uh, But we see here that Jesus does what no one else actually stood up to do. And so he is setting this example. Even though, again, he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing in this moment, Jesus has a mission that he came for. And this is what Jesus said to him. He says, hey, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Man, I don't want to hear that from the words of Jesus' mouth to me, right? This is, this is huge because his words are symbolic. They're not literal in the sense, hey, if I don't wash your feet, well, you got to get out because you're stinky. No, he wa- he's saying that there's something bigger at play here that you're, you're not thinking about, Peter, once again, right? We always give Peter a hard time. Uh, we would do the same. But he's not talking about the physical clean- cleaning he's actually doing. He is talking about this idea of washing as spiritual cleansing. Again, we have to go back to the Old Testament, and you, you probably are familiar with this particular psalm, but King David in Psalm 51:2 prays this. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. In verse 7, he says, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he hits on this as well. He says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And even the writer of Hebrews, he wrote, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water water and if that's not good news i I don't know what is so what jesus is saying here is that the only way you are going to be fully cleansed is if you place your faith in him right this is what we're understanding right it's not enough just to be cleansed on the outside it's it's about being cleansed on the inside once again peter doesn't get it verse nine he says lord not my feet but also my hands and my head he's like "No, no 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 peter that's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, he he is saying that, as he points out in that next page, this passage, he says, "The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean." Well, is Jesus being confusing again? No, he's being full on and saying, "Hey, you don't. If you go to the beach, you particularly maybe just need to wash your feet. You know, we probably all do take a shower, but at the end of the day, if every other part of your body is clean, you don't need to take a whole shower just to cleanse your feet." And of course that translate over to the fact that this is this idea that Jesus is making the point that you only have to truly be cleansed once from our sins, right? It's this idea of justification versus, well, not versus, but and sanctification, right? This idea of justification is important for us as Christians to understand, you heard it in the passage in Hebrews, or sorry, in 1 Corinthians that I just read. This idea of justification means in the moment that you confess your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were declared righteous. God looks at you because of the blood of Jesus and says, you are righteous, right? Now, that doesn't mean you are sinless forevermore. I wish that was the case. And this is where sanctification comes in, right? Is anybody from the moment of their salvation never sinned again? Anybody? Nope, no hands, right? So we know that. We sin, we sin on a continual basis. So however long you've been a Christian, two days, 40 years, you, God is making you more like his son Jesus every single day. Right? There may have been some sin you struggled with tremendously, but now maybe you don't, right? And that's what we're talking about. Jesus is making us more like his son Jesus, this idea of sanctification. I like the way one scholar, uh, who's actually a professor at the seminary I went to, explained it this way. He said, believers are clean, i.e. they're converted and regenerated, but still need continual spiritual cleansing, i.e. confession and forgiveness. Here in this passage, Peter and the other ten disciples were clean and only needed partial cleansing. In contrast to Judas, who was not clean, and for whom temporary partial cleansing was not enough. Please listen to this next statement, because I think it will apply for some of you in this room. Believers do not need to be re-saved every day, yet are in need of spiritual cleansing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And why did I place such emphasis on that last sentence? Is because I think some Christians really, really struggle with that. Right, that they think that they maybe do some grievous sin, and they like, wait, am I really saved? And they, you know, recommit or re-ask Jesus into their heart. And if you if you truly meant that, right, at least once in your life, I believe that God has saved you in that moment. And so, some, I know that there are Christians who struggle with that idea, like, oh, I need to get resaved, you know, every weekend or everything like that. Uh, and if, if that is truly something you struggle with, I would, I would highly recommend a great resource by J.D. Greer. He's the pastor of the Summit Church in, in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. But it's literally, the title of it is Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, he's not saying, don't ask, your, ask Jesus into your heart. He's just saying, you don't have to do it a million times and get baptized you know, 15 times. okay? But it really does hit on something I think a lot of Christians may struggle with. So make sure you understand the difference between justification and sanctification. We see here, right, that Jesus again acknowledges that you guys are clean, but there's one of you who's not, right? He knows the one who will betray him and calls him not clean, and that's significant. You don't want to be that person, okay? Look at verse 12 here. He continues on. He's washed their feet. He sits down back at the table, uh, and he asks them this question. Do you understand what I have done for you? He wants them to understand that he has served them with humility, right? He wants them to see that he is calling them to serve. Notice something that's not said in this passage. We, we need to make sure we understand that he does not skip over Judas. There's nowhere in this passage that says he went by Judas and didn't wash his feet. He washed his feet as well, knowing that Jesus or that he would be betrayed by him. He still washed his feet. The question I want us to consider is, would you be able to serve the person who you would know would betray you or stab you in the back? I guess the bigger question is, can we even do that? Because I think in and of our own strength, we can't, right? If I'm Jesus in this moment, I'd be like, nope, not happening, dude. Not washing your feet. Just being honest... But the only way we can do that is because of the gospel. The only way that we can do this is ultimately what Jesus is going to do, right? The reason he came is because he was going to go die on the cross for our sins so that we might serve those who will betray us. That's not the only reason, but that's a, that's a big thing that gives us the power to serve those kind of people because we know that the gospel changes everything, right? It restores broken marriages, you know, two seconds away from signing the divorce papers and it being finalized. The gospel can change that marriage, right? He can deliver people from alcohol, from drugs, fill in the blank, right? The gospel changes everything, right? And, and we see that, right? Jesus continues on in this passage. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now, if Jesus is neither one of those things, that's a bold statement. But we know that Jesus is this. He is, he is the Lord. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.11 that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he is claiming his divinity. He's saying, hey, I am the person you think I am. And we see this in other passages. And look what he says. He says, you ought to wash one another's feet. So he's explaining to them exactly what he wants them to do. It's this idea of they have this kind of obligation to serve one another. right? Yeah, maybe to wash their feet physically one day. But also to serve their fellow brethren, their fellow disciples, and those around them. Now we want to make sure we understand that Jesus was not necessarily giving this example to establish foot washing as a permanent practice. And, you know, some of you may have seen other people do this, uh, but at the end of the day, he was wanting to show them how to serve with humility. Because I've had the opportunity to do that one time, and it's, there's no way you can be proud in that moment to wash other people's feet. Just not. It, it's it's not some way and if you are you're wrong right there's just no way you can be prideful in that moment of washing other people's feet here we see that jesus says hey a servant is not greater than his master right and that sounds pretty easy to understand and it is right so what he's saying is if a master is willing to do a task the servant shouldn't be above doing the same task right and that's what jesus says he says blessed are you if you do them Jesus is calling them to obedience. Like he said, Luke records what Jesus said. He said, but he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This is literally the word of God, right? Jesus is giving them this opportunity and commandment to serve. Look at verse 18, which is an important verse for this passage. He says, I know whom I've chosen. And we know that through the course of the Gospels, we see Jesus choosing the disciples and calling them to himself. You may have seen that in the, the, the TV show, The Chosen. Uh, it's some pretty, pretty good illustrations of that. But he knew that only 11 of them would actually truly follow him. But he still called Judas. Right? He didn't say, hey, well, I'm going to just choose this guy even though I know what he's going to do. No, he, he still chose him. John fifteen sixteen a couple of chapters after this one said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So he, he has chosen them for specific tasks, right? And part of that is serving here with humility. And look at this verse in 18. It says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a pretty interesting passage, right? Kind of random. Jesus, what's up? Man, you're giving out bread, but how does this have to do with anything? Well, we need to make sure we understand. Once again, anytime you're reading scripture and you see "but," the scripture says, "Well, where does it say it in the scripture?" Best commentary on scripture is other scripture. Okay, and so we see in Psalm fifty-one where, or sorry, Psalm forty-one where this comes from. This is David writing. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his hill against me. Wait a minute. That's the same thing Jesus said. You're right. It is the same thing Jesus said, right? Jesus always uses scripture when he teaches. So the possible context for this actual passage is King David, right? He is forced to flee from his son Absalom, if you're familiar with that story. And Absalom actually uses the help of one of David's friends and trusted advisors uh, and he helped him literally turn the hearts of the people of Israel towards Ab- or Absalom. And eventually, of course, David goes on the run. So what Jesus is using this passage is to confirm that he already knew about Judas's betrayal. Right? In fact, this, this betrayal is actually fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. And just like King David's friend was a close advisor and ultimately betrayed him, Judas was a follower, a close follower of Jesus, at least enough to hang out for a few years but it would also betray the Son of Man. And that's pretty powerful, that Jesus already knows what's going to happen and still goes along with this particular plan. In verse 19 and 20, we see here that Jesus says, hey, I'm telling you this now because I want you to know after the fact that, hey, what I said is going to happen, that you believe that I am the one that I'm saying I am. He wants them to know beforehand so that after this betrayal that they will fully continue to trust in him in his plan that God has all along. And of course that goes back, right? He says it there, I want you to believe that I am he. The whole central theme of the book of John is that you will believe in him, in Jesus. Right, Jesus says in John sixteen four, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So again he is always preparing his disciples for what's coming down the road. And then in this last verse here in verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is making it clear here by this last verse in this section that his death will not stop the mission of God. Actually, it's only going to extend the mission of God, right? That he is going to extend them. He's going to send them out, as we see in the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? He's going to send them out to be representatives of the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, this death, as we already know, right, is only going to propel the the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So we have seen here, after seeing how Jesus has served with humility, John shows the second way Jesus served. In verses 21 through 30, Jesus served with love. Jesus served with love. So let's read this section and we'll we'll walk through it. In chapter 13, verse 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table, Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So we see here that right, Jesus is going to serve with love. And on, at the beginning of this verse, we see that Jesus is troubled in spirit, right? We, we kind of see that in some other passages, right? Where we see some emotion from Jesus, right? He's not this just God who has no emotion, right? He wept with Mary at the death of Lazarus, right? It says the shortest one of the shortest books in the Bible, or verses, right? Jesus wept. So again, we see that there's some inner turmoil going on, right? And possibly because of this situation with Judas, right? He loves Judas, even though maybe Judas didn't return the favor, right? He loves him as one of his own, as it said in the beginning. He, he has come to the point in the meal where Judas would fully give himself over to Satan. Imagine the weight that is upon Jesus in this moment. And, and he says there, he uses the intentional word, he testifies. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that, that word is used intentionally right this wasn't some rumor that jesus picked up down at the water hall or the the coffee pot down the road right he he knew intentionally that judas is going to do what he was going to do right this is not something he had to guess on or oh i'm 83% right no he was fully certain of what was going to happen over the course of the hours in the night ahead and of course imagine this news to the disciples right i mean some kind of statement like this would only bring what's going on what are you saying jesus right this bombshell and, of course, now you're being like, wait, who is it you? Is it me? Kind of moment here. And Jesus, can, well, John tells us what happens, right? One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So we, we know this if you've read this gospel at all. That this is the Apostle John. He, he doesn't do this in a prideful, arrogant way to describe himself, but kind of scholars believe that, you know, others kind of gave him this designation, the one that Jesus loved. He even sees that at the cross where Jesus says, hey, Take care of my mother. And let's, let's take a second to explain this reclining at the table. And if you, you're all familiar with this context, so I'm going to explain it. It's not like, don't think about your table at home, right? It's, you know, off the town or off the ground. You have chairs and things like that. It would literally be these small tables, pretty much floor level, where they would literally lean on their, their shoulders and arms and pretty much have their feet lying behind them. And, you know, one across and one, you know, however the setup was. So this is this idea. They're reclining at the table, and they would eat and continue their meal. And this is how John describes it. He says, hey, and he points to, or Peter asks the question, like, who is it? asking? And he's pointing to John because he's sitting next to Jesus. And so that's what he does. John asks Jesus, hey, who is the one who's going to betray you? Well, look at what Jesus says in chapter, or verse 26. He answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Well, that's an interesting statement. Well, you're just going to give some bread and that's how we're going to know. right? I like bread, but I don't hopefully want this piece of bread. We see here that this is the idea that the piece of bread right, is part of this Passover feast. There's a particular order that they would follow. Uh, I don't have the time to talk about that this morning. But essentially when they would dip it in this, this bitter herbs that was a part of the feast. And then the, the host would give it to someone singled out for a special honor. So think even in this moment that Jesus knows what Judas is about to go do. He gives him this piece of bread in love. He's, he knows, right? He, he loved Judas even to the very end. Imagine what's going through Judas' mind, though. I, don't, some, I think sometimes we don't take time to think about, you know, some of these. I know we can get in some dangerous areas if we, you know, get get uh, creative too much. But sometimes I think it puts it into perspective of what's going on in Judas' Judas's mind. One pastor described it this way, and I think it's pretty powerful. He says, the eyes of Judas, too, must have been riveted upon the hand of Jesus, at the same time glancing at his face and his eyes. What did Judas read in those eyes and in an extended hand? Could he not behold the deep pain, the burning love, the mighty warning? He beheld it all and was adamant against it all. He gave it to Judas and Judas takes it. But there's some weight in this moment, right? Because we know what Judas is about to go do. We've read the end of the story. We know how it ends. But by taking this morsel, he fulfills exactly what Jesus said would happen in chapter 6, in verse 70 and 71. And notice the tragic statement that John uses next. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Right? And that goes all the way back to verse 2, Right? Where it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So here we see Judas finally take the plunge. He gives himself fully over to this plan of betrayal and being used by Satan. Right, he has spurned for, for so long now the love of Jesus Christ. And this is the last time. And he was handed over to Satan. Let's, let's make a point here too that this was his choice. It wasn't the, the whole devil made me do it statement right Judas made this choice on his own yes the, the satan tempted him but he was the one who did this and notice what jesus says to him what you are going to do do quickly if i'm Judas, or if i'm jesus sitting there i'm like hey dude let's go have a chat let's go get some coffee right let's push it off as far as i could Right, that would be the way we would react to that. You're going to do everything you can. You're going to tie Judas up. You're going to, you know, put him in handcuffs or something, right? You're going to do everything you can to prevent him to going to do what he is going to do. What Jesus says is, says, "Nope. Go and do it quickly," and he knows that Judas is about to go betray him and tell him. And he tells him to go out and do it, which points to the fact that Jesus is controlling everything that is revolving around his death and Judas's plan has been exposed and now he's called to go do it quickly. And as the passage tells us no one at the table knows what he means by the statement, right? They're thinking, "Hey, go go sell something, go well, you" cuz we know from other passages that Judas was the money holder for the group and of course he also stole from that. So they may be thinking that he was going to do this particular errand. And we see that in verse 29 where it says that so the disciples are assuming that Jesus is sending Judas to some errand. The scholar that I've read from before, I think uh, he puts in another great picture. He says, nevertheless, in this present moment, the disciples guess, though reasonable, was wrong. Jesus did not send Judas on some harmless errand. He released him to betray the Son of Man into the hands of sinners. So Judas goes and does this with haste. He goes quickly, he leaves, and then they actually partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's an interesting three, four words that Jew, that John ends this particular section of. Look at it there. It says, And it was night. I don't think John is putting that there just so you know what, what it was like outside, right? We we could probably safely assume that, hey, yeah, we get it, John. It's dark outside. Well, no, as, as I studied this, a lot of the scholars and theologians said that this is kind of that idea, the same thing as Judas is now fully under the power of darkness. Right? He has gone past the point of no return As he would go to betray the one who would be able to have saved his soul if he would have let him. So we see here in this particular passage that we have seen that Jesus served in two distinct ways. At first he served with humility. That Jesus also served with love. And we know right from this passage, and we, if we kept reading and had the time this morning that this ultimately, this act by Judas is gonna lead to the crucifixion of Jesus, right? This intense suffering that he would have to go through, not you and me. And, and the whole reason, right, Jesus comes is 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 to go to the cross. Like that's the reason he comes. In, in our small group at our house, we've been going through this redemptive study of the Bible. We started from Genesis and we're working our way through. And one of the key verses that I've hit on uh, in our group and even at our, our study is Genesis 3.15. And I think we have to connect this moment to this right here because we need to understand the significance of why Jesus came. Listen to what Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, what does that even mean, right? So understand the context, right? Adam and Eve have taken from the fruit. They sin, they disobey God, and God comes to them. But he speaks to the serpent who is, you know, representing Satan in this moment and says, hey, one day I'm going to send someone who is going to crush your head, right? And I've used this example in our our group, right? If you get a foot injury, that that might be pretty bad, right, if you have that. But if you get a head injury, that's a lot more serious, right? You can die... Pretty quickly from a head injury. Foot injury? Maybe not. So what Jesus is saying. One day. From the moment in the garden of Eden. when As soon as they fell. That one day I'm going to send someone. Who is going to make all this right. Who is going to redeem humanity. So this promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Is happening right now in this passage. Right? This moment is not whoa, wait a minute, what am I about to go through, God, right? Jesus is saying, no, he understands that from the moment in the garden that this moment was coming, right? This story is at building since the fall. So Jesus' death or his suffering and death is the ultimate act of serving with humility and love. It's the epitome of sacrificial love. And and there was a, a distinct reason I had... Uh, Eddie, read Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven, because I think it connects to this passage so beautifully. Listen to what Paul wrote again in Philippians two six through eight. Who through, through who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, listen, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Here it is again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death. Sorry, the, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and, and I don't know any better way to describe what Jesus is doing in this passage than that verse right there in Philippians, right? That He's going intentionally to serve and to do these things. So, how do we apply this to our own lives now? Another pastor, he pointed out these two examples that Jesus sets for us. He said that one, no one is above serving. And that's right, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, came to earth as a human and ultimately would go to the cross for us, right? He does this lowest of lowest jobs. So none of us are above serving. And the the other thing is that no one is below being served, right? Jesus still serves Judas in this moment. He was with the sick. He was with the outcast all the time. So how does this apply to us? Just three, three observations I think we can apply to our own lives. First, that we are called to serve like Jesus with humility and love. So when we serve, we need to do it in a humble spirit and not some braggadocious being like, hey, look at how many volunteer hours I've done or trying to get some award at work. No, you're called to do it with humility and love. Second, we are called to serve with a sacrificial love. What do I mean by that? Well, this means that it means that you may have to serve someone who may turn their back on you and betray you. Whether it's a spouse, whether it's a lost friend, fill in the blank. Whether it's a church setting. We are called to serve those no matter what. And then third, we are called to serve in a way that points people to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. So church, we must look at our life and make sure that first and foremost we are in Christ because we can't do any of this apart from Him. And then we have to serve with humility. So if you do not have a relationship with Jesus this morning, you can't do this. You cannot serve in the way Jesus did. Any service, anything you do will be in your own power and will fall short. So my, my plea with you is give your life to Christ, right? Why not? As John the Baptist said, today is the day of salvation. Right? We see that even Jesus says that. Please give your life to Christ. Understand your need for a Savior. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. So at the end of this service, please come. Or during the, come and talk with me. Come talk with one of our elders here. And we can show you step by step how to do that. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and the fact that you indeed did serve with humility and love. Lord, we don't deserve the the grace and mercy that you have given us, but Lord, we know that you went to the cross for us. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just um, help us to understand that. God, we know that you're in control, that even in the moments of your, your betrayal, that would ultimately lead to your arrest and your crucifixion that you were totally in control of everything that was going on, and you're still in control. You've never left us nor forsaken us, and we know that even in the crazy situations of our world right now, that you are still on your throne. So God, I thank you. I pray that as we, we now enter into the time of preparing for the Lord's Supper, that you will convict us of any sin in our lives, Lord, that you will help us to know that we are loved by you, and that we can celebrate at the table together. We thank you, we praise you, in your name we pray. Amen.